please do help yourself to coffee and refreshments, but we do want to begin. We have, uh, I've looked around this table and the billing hours are so huge, with the exception <laughs> of the members of Congress, that we don't dare, because we don't pay you enough. Uh, but we're so delighted to have our, our congressional representatives with us. And uh, it's, a, it's not always that we have this privilege, and so we do want to get started. Uh, welcome. Thank you all for coming. We're really delighted to have so many of you here. Um, and, and I think, frankly, your presence here is the best indication of the importance of this effort. Uh, when this traces back to actually a, a board of trustees meeting we had at CSIS about a year and a half ago, and both Rich Armitage and Joe Nye are on my board, and both of them made a point that says, you know, America needs to reassess how it's using all of its attributes of power. And it caused me to think very deeply uh, about this. I, uh, at the time, was reading uh, a book on the history of uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower as president. And many of you may know about the famous solarium exercise that Dwight Eisenhower led. And this was a case where he was confronting uh, the hardening of the world after the World War II and after the, when the Cold War was starting to sink in and get hard. And he sent some of his people off to say, How, what's our str strategy for dealing with this? And what was really interesting for a military man was to come up with a conclusion that, yes, we needed to have a strong military posture to deter the intimidation that was presented by the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. But we really were going to win the long-term struggle based on our moral authority, on our economy, the dynamism in our society, and the opportunities that are presented for the world. That was back in 1952. And that was at a time when our, we were spending a little over 11% of our gross domestic product on defense. Okay. Today we're spending maybe 3, 3.5% of our gross domestic product on defense, but we are relying disproportionately too much on just military power as one of the attributes. And indeed, it's probably not the strongest attribute of our power. If you think about it, if we're going to, as a nation, do well in the world, we can't rely on only 3.5% of our effort to do that and ignore the enormous depth that's available inside this country beyond its military resources. Now, Joe Nye is uh, famous for having uh, created this term soft power. And in many ways, it, uh, it, it was, of course, it was one of those typical Joe Nye, a brilliant insight that all of us have benefited from. But in the process, we realized that it's, it's, it's not the alternative of hard versus soft that matters. It's how effective we are as a country in integrating these into a composite whole. We did very well at an earlier time. And we're not doing as well now. And so the purpose of this effort was to bring the best minds that we could, frankly, con into working with us. <laughs> I hate to say it. This is what think tanks do, you know. But to get these very, very fine minds together to help us think about this question. How do we do a better job of pulling together all of the attributes of America's resources to become a more efficient power, a smarter power? Let me turn to the two co-chairs. Let me, to, before I do, let me just say a couple of words of thanks. Uh, first, I, I want to thank the commissioners. Uh, 
obviously this is not possible. They devoted an enormous number of hours to work on this effort. And it would not be possible either without their experience or their personal commitment. And so we're grateful for that. And I want to say thank you to all of them. Second, I'd like to thank an individual who has done an enormous amount in quiet ways in this country. That's Hank Greenberg, who helped make this project possible. And he's really done a superb job, and we're very grateful for that. He is a commissioner, was not able to be with us today. But I will be seeing him shortly to render my thanks, because he made this, this uh, possible. I'd like to, uh, I would like to thank all of you. We consulted widely on this effort and spoke with many of you in this room and others. And it, again, it just depends on the collective good judgment of everybody to be able to get a wiser approach to, to our national directions. And uh, you've been very helpful to us, and I want to say thank you to you for that. Let me thank Carolyn McGifford and Craig Cohen, who uh, it's, they're the ones that did all the the hard work, and I especially want to say thank you. I don't even know where they are right now, but they're here in the room someplace, and I do want to make sure that they know how much I personally appreciate what they've done. And finally, to our two co-chairs, uh, Rich Armitage and Joe Nye were, uh, were exactly the right kind of taskmasters. They gave us a kick in the butt when we needed it, and they let us run when we knew our directions. And so let me turn to our our two leaders to open up the session. Rich and Joe, I don't know if you've decided Rich, first, Rich, yeah. Rich Armitage, please. Well, thank you very much, John, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> I'll tell you a little bit about why I accepted uh, this commission, to be on this commission when John, uh, John called. After 9-11, I think we Americans found ourselves in a rather unaccustomed position of exporting something that's very strange and very foreign. We were exporting our fear and af anger after the, the grievous attack, and I'm one of those who believes it's time to get back to exporting more traditional American values, such as hope and optimism and tolerance and opportunity. At the core of the problem, obviously, is that America has made the war on terror the central component of our global engagement. While terrorism is a real and growing threat, the fact of the matter remains that without WMD, Terrorism is not an existential threat to our survival as a nation. The terrorists can't force us to change our way of life. Only we can change our way of life if we react to these threats in a way that's inappropriate. Reacting through excessive use of force or rejection of policies that are important to our friends and to our allies and appearing to put ourselves above International legal norms encourages rather than counters terrorist recruitment overseas. And through these counterterrorism policies, we've established a reputation for holding a double standard. And that has hurt, I believe, our ability to engage partners when we need them. We've got to strike a balance between the use of force against violent extremists and other means of combating terrorism. We must also strike a balance at home between ensuring that our political leaders don't talk themselves into a corner by using the rhetoric of a fearful America rather than laying out a positive narrative of strong, healthy, and hopeful America. This is more than just a rhetorical device. It is critical for U.S. national security interests. If we look at the main challenges that we face today, terrorism, disease, 
climate change, economic inequality, fragile states, the rise of regional powers, none of these can be addressed by hard power alone. An extra dollar spent on hard power does not necessarily translate into an extra dollar's worth of security. Today, security must be achieved through a variety of means and not just our military. In fact, I would say uh, today more than ever, after six years of war, our military is overstretched and our military is weary. Our military is still the best in the world, but it needs to be reset. However, investments in our military should not come at the expense of investments in our civilian tools of power, nor vice versa. In short, this report is about power and how the United States wields it in the world. It is a report about how to prolong and preserve American preeminence as a force for good for as long as humanly possible. It is a report about how to complement U.S. military and economic might, which must not only be maintained but strengthened with greater focus on American soft power, which clearly has atrophied in recent years. We, the commissioners here, want, and as I believe all of you want, a United States which seeks to be a beacon for the world once again and not a nation which could be seen from time to time as out of step and out of favor. And that's the underlying motivation behind the Commission. And I think it, it sort of encapsulates the core theme of our report. Thank you, John. Just to <clears throat> add to what Rich said, uh, this report is an effort to widen the lens on foreign policy. Obviously, a next president is going to be seized with the problems of Iraq, Iran, and Pakistan, and all the things that are in the headlines today. But we think it's important in the debate that's coming up a year from now, between now and a, a year from now, uh, to think about American power in a broader context. And that's what we mean about widening the lens. Uh, power, we simply mean uh, the ability to uh, affect others to get the outcomes you want. And that uh, can be done, of course, uh, with hard power or soft power. Hard power is threats or, and coercion, soft, and uh, could be payments and bribes, whatever. Uh, soft power is uh, attraction and the ability to get what you want without uh, having to use so many carrots and sticks. Uh, but as John Hamry said, the important part is combining those two in a strategy neither one nor the other is sufficient. A smart power strategy is the ability to integrate your hard and soft instruments. Uh, we've done that in the past. If you look back, as John said, to the Cold War, uh, we used our hard power to deter Soviet aggression, but we used our soft power to attract uh, people behind the Iron Curtain so that when the Berlin Wall finally went down. It didn't go down under an artillery barrage. It went down under hammers and bulldozers because people basically had been attracted to a different way of thinking. And we're going to have to do something analogous to that in developing a smart power strategy for this struggle that we're going to face over the next decades of dealing with extremist uh, terrorism as well as the rise of new powers and a wide range of foreign policy issues. Uh, right now, we're not doing too well at integrating these instruments into a smart power strategy. Uh, we invest, what, uh, $750 million in the uh, defense budget. Uh, 
our public diplomacy budgets about a billion and a half and is less than it was in real terms uh, a decade ago. Uh, there's something wrong in that ratio. What's more, we haven't figured out how to integrate these instruments. Uh, we've done some useful things in combating HIV AIDS or in increasing a aid uh, for development, but we haven't figured out how to pull the various parts together so that we wind up, for example, having the Broadcasting Board of Governors cut our English language short range, uh, short wave broadcasts, uh, and the total savings of that is about, what, $25 million? And the cost of one more C-17, which the Air Force doesn't particularly want, uh, it's a great plane, I've ridden them, I like them, but uh, is what, something like $300 million? I mean, they, but there's no place in the government where that even arises as a trade-off, where you can ask uh, how you make that trade-off. So we haven't been particularly good in terms of implementing a strategy. We also need a design which projects, as Rich said, uh, what America is particularly good at in the values area, which is the values in our Constitution, uh, the sense of hope. And uh, what we argue in the report is putting the various struggles that we are going to face within a broader context of America as the leading country, which it will be for the next couple of decades in military and economic power, but the leading country also in the ability to provide global public goods, that can restore that sense of hope. Uh, we're always going to be somewhat presented as the biggest kid on the block, uh, but it makes a huge difference whether the biggest kid is seen as a bully or as a friend. And if we take the model of what Britain did in the 19th century, which is the largest uh, country but provided global public goods, which were in the interest of Britain, but in the interest of others as well, such as freedom of the seas, an open international economic system. Uh, these are the kinds of things where we can provide leadership which makes others uh, want to cooperate with us rather than oppose us. And if you'll, as we go through the report, which I now will ask various commissioners to do, what we're doing is suggesting some headlines and some specific proposals in which we can take that new kind of initiative to have an overall framing of American policy which can put our soft power and hard power back together again. Uh, so what we're going to do in explaining this is ask each of the commissioners to take a turn at, uh, at mentioning this. The five major recommendations that we have are to reinvigorate alliances and institutions, uh, restore the development, and particularly public health, to a dominant position in foreign policy, uh, do more with public diplomacy, including civil society and educational initiatives, uh, keeping an open international economy, uh, and then using our technology and capacities to innovate to do something serious about the energy and the climate issues. Uh, and then finally, to get our own act together here at home to be able to integrate these. So for each of these six, uh, I'm going to ask different commissioners to, uh, to take a, a couple of minutes to say uh, uh, what they have in mind about this. Let me start with the issue of alliances, partnerships, and institutions and ask uh, Nancy Castlebaum-Baker if she would take the lead on that. Nancy? Thank you. I am a strong believer and always have been since uh, serving on the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate on the importance of our international relationships through the international institutions. 
I think we've moved away today from a focus on the importance of working through international institutions by listening to other people's point of view instead of just telling what indeed is our point of view. There have been, and sometimes for important and obvious reasons, um, disquieting concerns about international institutions, whether it's the World Bank or the United Nations or the IMF, to name a few of the most prominent. But let me just say I hate to think what the world would be like if indeed we did away with the United Nations. Who would take responsibility for the refugees, as the High Commission for Refugees has done around the world? Who would provide a sounding box, so to speak, for the many countries around the world who value their participation with the larger entities and form a nucleus that I think we can expand with a more positive vision beyond just a war on terror? I think we have to be willing to listen and learn as well as convey our own point of view by being willing to take part in a greater role, in a more positive role within the international institutions. And I think we can help by integrating that with the others that have been, we've been speaking about by a greater role, I would have to say, on the Hill in both the House and Senate with more thoughtful oversight work in the committees, not to just bash one thing or another, but to have a dialogue and oversight of learning and understanding, which can help make the case. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. And, and just to add a note or two from the report uh, to what Nancy said, we also uh, felt that the United States needed to get on the institutional side away from being associated with things where we thumb our nose at international law, Guantanamo being a case in point, and to move forward with other things where we associate with it. Uh, the ratifying the Law of the Sea treaties would be an example. But in addition to the good things that Nancy said about the, um, the value of the UN as a overarching or, uh, institution, we felt that there's a need to set up a set of, a, of uh, groupings within that which can take the lead can essentially uh, supplement the UN by taking lead. We talked about various uh, fr frameworks, for example, expanding the group of eight beyond just the five invited guests to be a permanent uh, group of 15, um, which would essentially be able to take a lead within that broader framework. So for example, in the area of climate and the environment, if you had a grouping of 15 or 20 countries, you have 80% of the world's product, 80% of the world's emissions. And if you met at that level, you'd have a better prospect of making progress than only working within the framework of the whole of the UN. So in the report, you'll see a series of specific recommendations within that uh, broader framework of how we approach this. Um, let's turn next to the question of, uh, of global development issues, and particularly within that framework of public health, but let me start with uh, George Rupp. I guess George is at this end. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Well, I'll uh, make a, just a few comments about the, uh, the way in which NGOs in the private sector have a role to play along with government in this challenge of, of global development. Uh, 
First, non-government organizations are very important as implementing partners for public agencies, whether the U.S. government, the U.N., or other governments. Um, secondly, non-government organizations are very important in attracting private support that complements or supplements government aid, uh, and that amounts to billions of dollars each year. And thirdly, and probably most importantly, uh, beyond any role that NGOs play, the, the private sector uh, plays an absolutely crucial, uh, makes an absolutely crucial contribution through investment and trade policy. So the question of global development is certainly a matter of public policy, but it, it also includes needing to cultivate the kind of public-private partnerships that bring non-government organizations and the uh, private enterprise sector into the equation. The Commission uh, calls for a whole range of recommendations. I'm going to just mention three of them. The first is directly on the public side. It is crucial that the United States increase its level of commitment, just its sheer financial level of commitment to global development. In absolute terms, because our economy is so much larger than others, we are the biggest single contributor to official or government uh, development assistance. But measured as a fraction of our gross national product or gross domestic product, we fall very far down the list, very close to the bottom of all of the developed countries. Uh, and that seems to me an area that we need to redress so that we begin to do closer to our fair share of the investment in uh, the underdeveloped world. So that's, that's one crucial step we need to take. Secondly, the Commission recommends that we reorganize our whole financial, uh, our whole uh, international development operation within the federal government. There are now more than 50 agencies that provide foreign assistance in one way or another. They're often duplicative, they don't reinforce each other, they're uncoordinated. So our recommendation is that we establish a cabinet-level Department of Development as a, as a counterpart to state and, and defense that would elevate the profile of development assistance in the priorities that the U.S. pursues globally and would allow a place where priorities could be set and integration could be achieved. And thirdly, we recommend that, that uh, the U.S. continue to take steps to stimulate public-private partnerships, in particular with a focus on developing locally supported delivery systems in the developing world. That will allow us to connect directly at the grassroots level with countries around the world in which we increasingly recognize we have a major interest. Those are the recommendations we have at a macro level. We also, as is our custom, had a featured initiative that we had in this area, and uh, my colleague Betty McCollum is going to tell us about that. Let me turn to Betty to talk about the public health initiative, and then we'll turn to Rick Barton to summarize all of development. Okay. No, you're, I'm you're, okay. I'm the okay. All right, uh, Betty. Thank you. It's been an honor to be a member of the Smart Power Commission. I want to thank CSIS and our co-chairs for their leadership in developing this important foreign policy framework for the future. 
smart investments in the health of families and communities are the foundation of sustainable development. The report clearly identifies global health as a transition, transnational cha challenge and a smart power opportunity. The Bush administration and Congress have made significant commitments to battling HIV and AIDS and malaria. It has been a foreign policy success and it's been tremendous in saving lives. These initiatives must continue, but now we have an opportunity to do even more. In reference to renewing our commitment to global development, the Smart Power Report states, and I quote from it, as a first priority, the next administration should start with a dynamic and growing field of global health, which affects every person in every nation. Healthcare access is a major issue here at home in the U.S., and we're the richest nation on earth. For the more than two billion people on this planet who live on two dollars a day or less, it's a matter of life and death. Confronting extreme poverty requires American leadership. Global health interventions are the right place to focus. The next administration should expand partnerships with developing nations to defeat disease and despair by investing in making families and communities healthier. Investing in a global health demonstrates America's commitment to human development and our respect to save lives of the poor around the world. And when we do that, we make the world more secure and more peaceful. It's also in the interest of this nation to save lives while strengthening health systems. That must be part of a global health surveillance network that we are also dependent upon. The report proposes creating the U.S. Global Health Corporation as an innovation to expand the focus of America's investment in global health. This proposal would take on challenges such as confronting the health worker shortage by investing in training doctors and nurses and other skilled health workers. It would also prioritize one of my top legislative priorities, investing in child and maternal health. Six million newborns and young children die every year in poor countries from treatable diseases. We can prevent that. More than a half a million mothers died needlessly every year from pregnancy-related causes, and millions more are permanently disabled. Child survival and maternal health should be the foundation of America's global health platform. If healthy systems in poor countries can be strengthened to meet the needs of women and children, then we have a platform to more successfully confront HIV TB, malaria, avian flu, and global health threats. The Smart Power Commission report elevates global health as a priority for investment and action. In America's foreign policy and security toolbox, we possess the resources, the knowledge, the commitment to save lives and establish a healthier, safer world. But what will be required will be the political will to move forward. This is an excellent report, and I strongly support its findings and recommendations. As a nation, we will need a wise and determined president to act upon the contents of this report. America's leadership is essential to global security and opportunity, and this report offers an excellent pathway forward. Thank you. Thank you, Betty. <clears throat> and let me now uh, turn to the topic of public diplomacy, civil society, and educational exchanges and ask Terry Tubman to start us off. Thanks very much, Joe. 
We all know that the ability of the United States to influence the behavior of others and to secure willing cooperation depends directly on the way that other people see us. They form their opinions on the basis of many things, the words of the United States government being perhaps the least on the list. As George Rupp just mentioned, the NGO, the non-governmental organizations and organizations abroad reach down to the grassroots level and influence the way that people see Americans. But there is a job for the government to do in order to communicate more effectively with the other peoples of the world. And considering the wide varieties of cultures, of history, of expectations that are abroad, we have to be able to reach out and do that. And we are a blessed country, an extremely fortunate country, because we have in this country the greatest diversity of population from anywhere in the world. We have all the ethnic, the geographic, the uh, religious groups represented in the United States. People who have been here for generations, who helped to build this country, who are fully a part of it, committed to it. And yet, as you look in the halls of power, there is no reflection that this is the kind of country we have. We decry the fact that we don't find people who speak certain languages or who understand the cultures of other areas. And we know that we have hundreds of thousands and usually millions of people from the different ancestries here as complete, dedicated Americans willing, ready, and able to do everything to defend what this country stands for if we would only call on them. But we say we can't find any who do it because we haven't learned to think about the inclusion within our own society of the many Americans of different ancestries who believe in this country as much as we all do. To the degree that we wish to be able to exercise that influence, what we have to do is to draw far more fully on this very rich diversity that we have. The opinions abroad are formed by the American media, which is all over, reaches every part of the world. It's formed by travelers. It's formed by exchanges, of which, unfortunately, there are fewer and fewer. In my 41 years serving the United States, the people I found most reliable are those who had lived in this country, studied in this country, and got to know us warts and all, but still found the essence of what America stands for. And on the basis of that, were fully prepared to cooperate with us. We need to do a lot more in the exchange of people, of culture, of ideas, of, informi of information 
so that we get to know each other. As you get to know people and you show that you have respect for them, that you're willing to treat them with dignity, then you begin to get people who are willing to cooperate and understand and work along willingly with you. We can be a smart power. We can exercise leadership. We can secure willing cooperation if we draw much more fully on the richness that we have in this country and as we allow free exchanges of people, goods, information across boundaries. This is one of the things that we certainly hope that the next administration will do. Thanks very much. Thank you, Terry. Let me turn to Rick Barton now. Thank you, Joe. <clears throat> Public diplomacy is not about popularity. Rather, it's a, it's a way to build understanding, mutual respect, and alliances, most often between the people of the United States and the people of other countries. This report believes that more must be done in terms of the amount of money that we spend, which is now less than France does, in terms of our organizational structures where this view is not heard in the highest councils, in terms of our field sensitivity where our ambassadors and our, and our diplomats are closed within embassies and unable to get out and really meet with the people, and our understanding of local media and cultures is not as great as it should be, and in terms of our leveraging non-governmental assets. We agree with Edward R. Murrow who famously said that the critical link in the international communication chain is the last three feet of personal contact. With that in mind, we recommend a focus on youth. We believe in the increasing awareness of our young people where one of four says that he or she will steady, live, or have other contact abroad in their lifetime. We recognize the dominant global demographics of most of the countries that we're working in, such as Pakistan, where 50% of the population is under 20. We emphasize student exchanges from the U.S. and to America. We believe that we need to build on the existing strengths of our, our, of our educational institutions, the diversity of choice, innovation, quality, and openness. We see that Fulbright applications are at an all-time high, including from the Islamic world, but we recognize that there must be a greater ease of access to the United States, including our visa process. So we urge the following steps. We think that there needs to be an expanded, that we need to expand the successful exchange and education programs that now exist. Congress should double the amount of money, the $183.9 million that's presently appropriated for the Fulbright program. We should expand the State Department's successful International Visitor Leadership Program and the Department of Defense's National Security Education Program. We think we should emphasize uh, the U.S.-China and U.S.-India educational funds for obvious reasons. Uh, we think that there should be a 10-year special allocation of funds administered through the Fulbright Program to create a new generation of American specialists on China and India. We think that we have to expand Middle East language competencies and we need to draw more on America's cultural advantages which Terry mentioned so, so uh, eloquently. So within those specific steps we think that the public diplomacy initiative could make a huge difference in the future of our country's understanding and of our understanding others. 
Thank you, Rick. Let me, on the question of economic integration and trade, turn to John Henry. Um, you know, it, it's commonplace when we say that the strategy to succeed in the Cold War was the containment strategy, but that actually was not the primary strategy that we adopted. That It was an essential element of it um, to be able to prevent the military intimidation from the West. But the primary foundation of the strategy during the Cold War was to create a liberal international economic order. We knew that increasing liberal economic trade was going to be the key to success. And we were dealing with two problems. It wasn't just it wasn't just the problem of the of the Soviet Union. It was that in the 1930s we crippled ourselves by the way we contracted our economy and put in trade barriers. Smoot-Hawley was the greatest self-inflicted wound in America's history. And we started in 1950 to dig out from that. And we have consistently for the last 50 years been trying to reestablish a more international, liberal international economic order. And it has lifted billions of people out of poverty. Our recommendations here are probably not going to be popular in this Congress because we are saying that we need to step past our fear and anger and paranoia about immigrants and about imports. Right now America is obsessed with its vulnerability in the face of globalization and yet it is going to prosper if it engages globalization, not tries to protect itself from globalization. So the recommendations in this report call for America to take the lead on trying to revitalize the Doha Round in WTO, and for America to take the lead in creating a free trade block inside the WTO, and for America to take the lead in providing, without reciprocity, lowering of barriers to third world countries for their goods and products. If we do that, you will find that America will not only boost its own standing in the world, but will help lift many, many more millions of lives out of poverty and set this next generation on a much better path. Thank you, John. On the fifth of our major areas um, in this general policy of representing global public good, where you talk about technology and innovation in the area of energy and climate, and Rich is going to talk about that. The least technically capable person on the panel will now talk about the technology uh, and indeed the climate. Uh, look, uh, 35 years ago we had a huge energy shock, uh, uh, 1973, and uh, since then uh, nothing has been done. Uh, politicians and others flap their gums about it and we've no, no policy, energy policy. Second, to the extent people do talk about energy these days, they talk about energy independence. It's a chimera. It's not possible. So we ought to just purge that from our lexicon. And third, that I think it is generally and broadly accepted that energy uh, security is not a domestic issue any longer. It's a national security issue. And all this takes place at a time when demand is uh, rapidly approaching supply, which puts a premium on having much more uh, efficiency uh, in energy. At, all at the same time that we're wrestling all of us with a carbon-constrained world. I think there is a general recognition uh, that we all have the responsibility to capture CO2 emissions. Uh, none of us have the real answer on how to do it. We've put together 
uh, several suggestions on a way to move forward, increasing our energy efficiency while at the same time trying to compete in a carbon-constrained world. And it's our view that U.S. leadership uh, to shape this new energy framework uh, is a unique opportunity for us to alter the geopolitics of energy, uh, improve energy security, as I've suggested, and reinvigorate, most importantly, the spirit of innovation and entrepreneurism that we think is one of our basic strengths. Uh, thinking Joe and I were doing something earlier this morning, and Joe had raised the point that uh, China's coming online with coal-fired plants about two a week uh, with all the associated dirtiness that goes with them. What an opportunity for us as a nation with our technological entrepreneurship to be able to approach China and work with it to try to not only increase energy efficiency but clean the coal. In a way, this is something that ought to bring us together with China. They certainly are recognizing the need for this. Well, toward, toward the end of having the next administration bringing together the government, the private sector, and the civil society to discuss these next steps, we've suggested four items, and I'll just lift them. The first is that we suggest that the administration consider establishing a common principles charter for advanced energy security and sustainability. This would outline the principles of sound energy policies and practices that serve as the foundation for global energy security. And provisions of the charter could include such things as protection of the sea lanes and critical infrastructure, energy infrastructure, investment-friendly regulatory and legal frameworks, et cetera, et cetera. The second item is we suggest that the administration work hard and assiduously to create a level playing field to underpin this carbon-constrained economy. And this will make it necessary to put an economic value on greenhouse gas emissions by some mechanism or another. There are suggestions out there. Uh, I don't think anyone has chosen what mechanism might be best, but certainly consideration of this by the next administration we feel is an absolute necessity. Third, set up and fund a joint technology development center. This is uh, something that would be uh, in conjunction with our Department of Energy in partnership with major global energy companies uh, and international and regional development banks. And finally, to establish a global free trade in energy efficient goods and services. And by this we mean negotiation, the, negotiating the elimination on a global basis of all barriers to trade and investment in goods and services that contribute to energy efficiency and a reduction of uh, CO2 emissions. So that's uh, some of the ideas that we've come up with. I'm sure you'll have questions, and I'll be very uh, astute in deflecting them to my fellow <laughs> Let me now turn to the question of how do we do this? Do we, how does the government uh, uh, restore confidence and capacity to do some of these things that are involved in a smart strategy? And ask John Hamry to start us off on that. Um, uh, there was a remarkable little study that I read recently that was done by the World Bank. It was called How the Wealth of Nations is Measured. Uh, and it's an econometric study that tries to evaluate uh, the, the wealth of 180 countries and put them into f three categories. Uh, natural wealth, meaning fisheries, forests, agricultural wealth, mineral wealth, etc. Produced wealth, and that would be things like buildings, factories, infrastructure, bridges, etc. And the third category was intangible wealth. 
which are things that you can't measure as readily, but it's such things as uh, the quality of your workforce, the education system, the efficiency of your judicial system, the cohesiveness of your society, etc. What was startling was how much of the world's wealth resides within this intangible category. Matter of fact, for developing countries, the average for developing countries, 59% of the wealth of those countries was in intangible wealth. For the United States, it's actually 83% is in intangible wealth. Now, if you look at each of those categories, the uh, in intangible wealth, the efficiency of the education system, the efficiency of your judicial system, having a rule of law that protects intellectual property and physical property, uh, the cohesiveness of society, and the sense of, of belonging in the society. Almost every one of those attributes is a product of government. In other words, the quality of our government is directly contributing to our wealth as human beings. Now, we do not invest in quality government. We frankly have an angry politics in this country. We disparage our politicians. We need them, and yet we disparage them. We do not bring forward the kind of respect and honor that we have for those people in public life. And let me just privately again say to our members of Congress that joined us, I want to say personally thank you to you for being willing to do this. Senator Kassebaum, you served many years, and we're grateful for that. We need good public leaders. And you will see a description in this report of things that we need to do then using this quality of leadership. We need better oversight in Congress over what we're doing in the executive branch. We need better mechanisms that bring us together. We need the equivalent of a quadrennial smart power review. We do a quadrennial defense review, but we don't do a quadrennial review of all of our attributes as a power. We need to start doing those sorts of things. We need to develop a new institution, and I would especially want to turn to Congressman Thornberry to discuss this because it's a very important attribute. But the quality of our government and what we expect of it to be a progressive force in advancing it is central to pulling off all of these recommendations. Let me turn to Matt Thornberry to finish up. This commission has uh, produced a report with a vision and, and specific recommendations in, in five key areas. It, it may seem obvious, but I think it's often overlooked that it doesn't really matter what policies the next administration adopt or what laws we may pass in Congress if those things are not effectively implemented. And yet one of the points we make in the report is that at least six out of ten Americans have considerable doubt that the federal government can implement anything effectively or, or efficient, efficiently. Uh, and increasingly, the, the kinds of issues we lay out here are multidisciplinary. They cross lines, and that means one department, one agency is not going to solve it. We have to be, have a government that can work together, and, and we don't. So one of the emphasis we place is in structural reform of the government in order to better implement whatever policies uh, or laws come about. That should include, in my opinion, and, and, and the Commission believes, reaching out beyond government. For example, one of the recommendations we have is to create a center for strategic communications outside of government. 
a nonprofit entity that can reach out the amazing expertise in this country in polling, research, communications of all kinds, and tap into that to, in order to make better use of it in, in promoting the, the policies uh, of the United States. We've got to be creative, not be limited by our stovepipes, and, and, and be willing to, to push for reform. If I can say one other thing, I suspect Betty and I don't vote together very often in the either-or sorts of situations we're presented with on, on the floor of the House. And yet, all of us on this commission from both parties, inside and outside of government, have come together on a report in, in, and agreed to it unanimously in, in, in five key areas. One of my greatest difficulties is to go back home and be honest with the people about what's going on in Washington but not leave them in despair. <laughs> This report is a pocket of hopefulness that serious people can sit down and talk about serious issues and come together on agreement. I hope the rest of the town will follow. Well, thank you, Mac. That uh, is now over to you for questions and answers. You may want to direct your question to a specific uh, commissioner or, or in general, but uh, we now have uh, your chance to, uh, to raise whatever questions you have. So. Over to you. Yes. Just Here a comes a microphone. Uzer Sleman, with the Mustakbal Arabian Bureau Chief. There is something missing, probably, the role of United States in solving or resolving regional conflicts. And I don't know where it falls under that. The other issue is the issue of how we can reconcile the desire to maintain supremacy in the world, in the structure of the world, but at the same time maintain a steady military budget and structure, and at the same time convey to the world uh, the soft power side that we're talking about. Let me uh, say a word or two on that and then ask Rich if he wants to add on to it. Uh, there, it actually, it, one of the things is the report is much richer than we've been able to convey in our little two or three minute presentations. There is a section in which we say one of the things that a great power does in providing global public good is to mediate and take the lead in resolving regional conflicts. And we do uh, say that in the report, indeed, we say that we have to take a lead on the Israel-Palestine issue. Uh, on the other point about uh, how do you maintain a uh, military budget as we have and still uh, do more with soft power, one of the great dangers we've had is that because the Pentagon is so efficient in getting things done, we turn more and more to the Pentagon to do things. And that essentially means that uh, we present a, uh, a appearance to the world of an overly militarized uh, foreign policy. And that means we're going to have to invest more in the other instruments of soft power. Uh, they won't be equal in strength, but it means that we have to have, for one recommendation we have, for example, is increasing personnel in the State Department, improving the public diplomacy institutions, improving the institutions for development aid. So 
we, in the report, make uh, specific recommendations of areas where we need to invest to redress that balance more. Rich, you want to add on it? Yes. Thank you. Following up on that, this is Jill Shooker. Um, uh, Joe Nye or anyone else would like to respond. Did you attempt to tackle at all the structural issue of public diplomacy uh, since the transition from USIA to placing it within the State Department? Is the view of the panel that this is effective? Does it need to be changed? Uh, in terms of trying to have a, uh, a full administration effort, can this really be run from the Department of State? Thank you. Rich is a former Deputy Secretary. You should answer that. <laughs> well, I, I must say I think the experiment uh, separating out or, or rather putting USIA back into the Department has not been a success. Uh, and uh, I would only, the only hesitancy I had to make a very, myself, personally, a strong recommendation that it be standalone again was a lack of understanding of how much budget might be associated with it. But I would have to say from the perspective of a former Deputy Secretary, it, the marriage or, or the mating didn't work as well as it should have. So I think the general feeling is that it was a mistake to separate USIA out. USIA, or put it back in rather, the, the department, and that it would be better if it were standalone and had its own career path, et cetera. Uh, but uh, anyone else? Rick, you want to? Yeah, we just, we didn't uh, make it a recommendation, but it, it, essentially we took the line that uh, was just described. We thought that it needs to be semi autonomous or autonomous, probably <coughs> reporting to the Secretary of State, but really having more standing, more independence and uh, certainly a much bigger budget than it has had. Uh, we, we show in the report that the money is really not even what it was in the early 1990s now, despite the increase of the last few years. Uh, so uh, we do take it on in a number of ways. I think some of us would like to see uh, those highest councils around the president when he or she is making very difficult decisions have somebody there who has the public diplomacy portfolio so we don't just step into uh, some incredible uh, messes that we have discovered uh, in recent times. Yes, Betty. This is an example of, you know, transformational change that didn't involve the Congress. There was no oversight. There was no enriched discussion on it. And so uh, I remember the first time uh, meeting with uh, the administration on this in my office and finding out what was included and what wasn't included in the State Department. If this was about bringing things together to really make sure that we were getting the most efficiency and the most effectiveness out of our aid dollars, uh, the fact that we had USAID over here, Millennium Challenge Corporation over there, PEPFAR over there, yet they were all supposed to be integrated and kind of working on the same uh, same issues. So. I think that uh, we, do, we really do need to see uh, the new, uh, our new president really look seriously on how best to increase public diplomacy. And that's going to be what George was talking about and others had mentioned, and that is looking at all the different entities that are involved in this. I mean, the, the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture plays a role in food security in, in these countries, too. So we, we really do need coordination, but it means full coordination and not just uh, the administration picking and choosing uh, how to put things together, which in essence then protects some programs and makes uh, aid programs compete amongst themselves. 
Yes. You and Betty and Nancy, maybe you want to chip in on that? Well, I guess the short answer is leadership. Um, this report does not try to solve all the problems of the United States government's budget or the, fix the entitlement issues or all of the issues related to the military. It, as I mentioned, it sets out a, a vision ahead with some specific recommendations in five very key areas. Um, but it, there's no doubt that uh, it will be up to the administration and the next Congress to uh, pursue those things if it chooses and make those difficult budgetary decisions uh, uh, along the way. Our view, though, is that if we ignore the, the areas that, um, that we have in this report, it will be much to our detriment. Betty? Well, You mentioned that you're from a younger generation. The younger generation gets, people get it. Uh, business people understand how interconnected and interdependent we are. Um, children graduated from high school and college uh, uh, understand how interconnected we are. And if we don't uh, use every tool in our toolbox to develop a more, a more secure world or more peaceful world, we are going to be hard-pressed to even address some of the challenges uh, that, uh, that you brought up. Um, Social Security is important, and I mentioned in, in, in my statement that health care is a big issue here at home, too. But it's also important with uh, what we're seeing uh, with the discussion about uh, the next pandemic, uh, avian flu, uh, that we have, uh, we've used our tools widely not only to help secure our own health population, but when we help secure um, the, uh, the way in which we can work to eradicate malaria, ways in which we can uh, work to prevent extreme TB from spreading, we're also helping ourselves out. So we need to be a lot smarter in how we do it, but I think in, in this case, and I'll speak for my generation and above, as well as uh, most members of Congress, we don't, we don't get it the way everyday Americans really are understanding what's going on with our interconnectivity. Nancy? I might just add that I think actually 
what we will really care about as a nation is if we have confidence and trust that we're managing things well. I think we can't sell any new initiative unless we can also recognize the coordination and effectiveness of management that comes. And I think there is a lot of distrust today that we aren't doing these things in a manner that gives people the confidence of, of the globalized world we live in. And if we can't convince people of that, uh, then we are not going to be able to accomplish this, many of the things here that we wish to do. But I'm a firm believer we have to be far better in management. Management and effectiveness. I would just suggest that maybe we ought to leave USIA where it is, Rich, and give it a chance with management and direction that will make it more effective. And if it will prove that we can't do that, we can't enhance our our uh, library programs abroad and some of these things that we used to do through USIA, then we, we need to reconsider. But until we can prove we're effectively doing it and managing it so that it is, it is accomplishing what we wish, I think we have failed in that and maybe it's beyond us to do so. But if we can't do it, then we're going to fail in everything else. Rick, you wanted to? Just a, a quick uh, point. Early in this process, we did a listening tour of four early, uh, pres four important presidential states, South Carolina, uh, Iowa, Minnesota, and New Hampshire. And then we also looked at a lot of the polling that was coming out. And it's clear that the American public that we met with, about 240 people in 36 meetings, basically said that they would rather have trade-offs than plus-ups. And so then we started to give them choices. If there was a group that was somewhat uh, in favor of more soft power, we'd say, well, if you were running the State Department and you had a choice of spending $600 million on a new embassy in Baghdad or $600 million to prepare 600 Americans to be thoroughly capable to operate in a place like Baghdad, which would you choose? Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly. I mean, it was 99% of the people said they would rather have the money spent on developing the talent. Um, then we, for people who are on the hard power side, we asked them, well, would you be willing to trade a, an aircraft carrier, say a $6 billion uh, aircraft carrier, for our ability to really understand and operate freely in these countries? People at Bob Jones University said, I'm very much in favor of, of, of a, a strong defense, but at this time, I would rather see the $6 billion spent on developing the human capacity. So. People see these trade-offs, but those, those trade-offs are not really offered to these people, to our people. And so even though they're overwhelming, I mean, they're 92% they're, they're of the people. I've, I've had four people out of maybe 500 people at various public speeches who've said, build the embassy. Uh, almost everybody else has said, I'd rather have the other. Yeah. I can just finish up with a footnote on this, which is it's also important to keep this in perspective. Um, if you look at what we're spending overall on defense, and international affairs. It's about half of what it was during the Cold War. So is this, are we capable of doing more? The answer is yes. And within that, when you do look at trade-offs, look at what we spend on the World Health Organization and the Pan American Health Organization, $150 million. That is peanuts. I mean, that is, that's lost in the noise of the defense budget. Um, and yet if we had a pandemic, and you ask, what would be the cost of a pandemic? 
on this society, they'd be enormous in the billions. Uh, so the, there really is, I mean, you're right to point out the budgetary limitations, and the report does not try to do, as Max said, doesn't do all the budgetary math, but we try to provide a perspective in which as people do that careful accounting, they will see this from the larger picture. Andy Patterson with Econergy. Frankly, I'm struck a little bit by the naivete of casting it as hard power versus soft power when it seems to me that in the 21st century, the primary organ for other countries playing ball is state-owned enterprise, whether it's Gazprom, uh, Shell, BP. These are things that we have a religious aversion to in this country, but that other countries use as their primary organ of what I'm calling hard money instead of hard power versus soft power. We are losing the field in Latin America to, to the likes of China Petroleum, Spanish utilities, uh, European banks, all state-owned enterprises. And to Nancy's point about management, the other countries are playing by letting those state-owned enterprises take the lead as our private enterprises are retreating. And so our private market hasn't filled the void. The other countries are stealing our lunch and the foreign landscape by using state-owned enterprises and their best people in them, which is the second structural problem we have, to basically take the field. So I'm, I'm curious how the, how the panel would incorporate hard money and coordinated investment in between hard power and soft power with these other companies taking the field from us. John? Uh, this was not explicitly discussed in this report, but we have done some work on this very area. They, there's no question that over the last 30 years, there has been a shift uh, from private sector oil companies to government oil companies around the world. That doesn't obviate the, what we think is still the best strategy that we still think as a nation that it's best to put these capacities in the private sector and to have a partnership with them in the private sector. Now, it, it does raise the question about what is the role of the United States government on behalf of those private entities, and that's, that's a, an unresolved issue. It is important for us as a nation to stand up for the rights of our companies when they are challenged through other international action in another in another study that we've done here at CSIS, we discussed that, and I'd, I'd commend you to look at that. We don't think that, the, that your point invalidates the model that the United States has embraced historically, that this, this, the tragedy about, about government oil companies, with the exception of some very notable exceptions like Stott Oil and, uh, and Aramco, is that their inefficiency is going to hurt everybody. And I think that's the greater problem with these companies. It's not that they are impinging upon America as much as that they're denying their own societies. But if, if I may, uh, your point, uh, this phenomenon of national oil companies is one I know all of our major energy companies are wrestling with. Uh, <clears throat> but you might look at the example you raised of China. China is using her soft power and says it in order to get herself in a position in many countries around the world to take a dominant position, whether it's in Africa or in our own hemisphere. They are, as you've suggested, putting very good people who are no longer promoted because of party purity or, or seniority into positions of prominence because they're capable. That's the first thing. 
Uh, second, uh, if you look at the travels of a Hu Jintao of, of China, uh, he goes early to the international meetings, they invest money, they tour, they do all these things that we used to do. Uh, rather than having now a president who comes in at the 11th hour for a meeting with 850 people and several armored limousines and helicopters and C-5s. So they're, they say they're using their C-5, they're, they're, excuse me, their soft power to, to sort of infiltrate, if you will, if I can use that term, uh, into uh, various regions. Uh, they're trying with, well, with very success in Africa right now. Yes. Mike Miyazawa, when American people talk about public diplomacy, it is usually a one-way approach from the United States to the rest of the world. And when I talk with people from the Middle East, all of them say, without exception, we know America, but Americans don't know us. So what may be more important, I suspect, is something like public diplomacy in reverse inside the United States, especially among politicians. Do you have any recommendation on this point? Fortunately, the report does agree with you. And uh, we point out the importance of these face-to-face -face contacts. Broadcasting tends to be one way. Exchanges, which is where we put our extra dollars, uh, is two-way. And we point out it's not enough just to attract 500,000 foreign students to American universities, but it's important for American students to go overseas, and I think the number we have in the report is something like 200,000. Uh, I don't know, George, do you want to add anything on that? But No, you sum summarized it exactly right. We, we do uh, put our emphasis on exchanges and on movement in both directions, and uh, your, your own diagnosis is exactly correct. The United States has been exceedingly provincial in the extent to which at, to any substantial fraction of the population we know about other parts of the world, and we strongly agree with you that, that has to, we have to address that directly by increasing the funding for exchanges. Uh, Fulbright awards work in both directions. The program ought to be expanded. It's a model that has had been enormously effective now over, over many decades, but it's not the only example of such activities that we need to pursue. If I may, I think there's another point to your correct comment. That is uh, how America carries herself abroad. Your statement about Middle Easterners saying that America doesn't understand us. Well, to be great in the conduct of foreign affairs without being arrogant is the trick. And uh, it seems to me that we'd get a lot farther in the Middle East and other places if we just hushed up a bit and carried ourselves with a small bit of humility. Everybody knows who the United States is and what the United States represents in terms of total power. Now, we'd be a lot farther along the track, I think, if we were just to be a little quiet and a little humble. Uh, we don't have to announce our presence at every international meeting. Just be there and be quiet, and I think we'd be a lot better off. Rich, it's, it's hard not to observe that in 1980, uh, I'm sorry, in 2000, one of the candidates for uh, president uh, announced that he wanted to have a humble foreign policy. Uh, <laughs> I know who wrote it for him. <laughs> Good advice. Hey, uh, All the way in the back uh, against the wall. <laughs> yeah, Sam Hancock with the uh, Green Motion Movement and the Eurasia Center. About the uh, soft power in the United States, we really place an emphasis and uh, pride in the private sector. 
uh, communities of faith, Rotary International for the exchanges and scholarships uh, two ways. Uh, yet in your report, are you talking about that, how you can leverage about $253 billion worth of private donations in the last couple of years uh, with what the government is doing and also the policies of the Congress? Thank we do you. mention that. I mean, if you look at the work that the Gates Foundation has done in Africa and so forth, that's an enormous addition to American soft power. But uh, we also make the point that uh, uh, having this new institution that Mac uh, Thornberry mentioned might be a way for the government to put up some of the seed capital for a broader range of American private entities, uh, but put it up behind a firewall so that it's not governmental, but it's our civil society interacting with others. Congressman B. Reuter. Doug B. Reuter, the Asia Foundation. I noticed that after 9-11 there were seven major commissions or task force that looked at public diplomacy and all of them said uh, we should use the tools and the capacities of the private sector. And six of the seven mentioned the NGO community and the civil society programs. And those are music to my ears. Uh, I think mostly when we think about public diplomacy, we think of the State Department and uh, USIA. Uh, but I think public diplomacy is too important to be left to the diplomats. And uh, I wonder if you address the subject of volunteerism, because it seems to me that the most effective public diplomats for the United States are American citizens doing volunteerism abroad, whether it's the Farmer to Farmer program or the retired executives. And not only do they show America at its best, but they come home and address this gentleman's point. They become missionaries back home in their communities for, for uh, our engagement abroad. And so for dollar for dollar, I think that volunteerism is the biggest asset we have because what we have as a, the most important part of our wealth is unlimited talented people who have their heritage back in these countries still have the language in it. And so I wonder if you address the importance of volunteerism in public diplomacy and soft power and therefore smart power. Terry, you mentioned this. Do you want to comment on that or Rick, uh, either one of you? Yes, I think there's a lot of attention paid. In fact, I mentioned as I was speaking that the part played by the U.S. government is really small compared to the massive impact of the non-governmental private civil society uh, groups that are abroad. And the creation of the special commission is to get a group that has a firewall that will work with the private sector. I think the, the U.S. government can do a lot more in terms of harmonizing the activities that we do with the enormous amount done by the private sector. There should be people who get to know what the private sector is doing abroad and who has enough conversation and exchanges so we can see the total impact that is being made. And I think that idea is generally within the report. You're quite correct. Did you have in front here? Jim Fondren from the U.S. Pacific Man. I have a question. One of the things that appears to me this whole report fails to do is it dodges the issue of a U.S. identity. Who are we? What are we as a country? You, you, you 
you talk about wanting us to be a, a humble country, or are we an imperial country? Since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we haven't identified who we are. We have not had clearly identified national interests or national security objectives, and we've been on a continuous slide. We've been trying to exert global leadership, but who are we as a country? We've never really defined ourselves. So how do you do that and justify your report? Rich, do you want to answer that? Or I, I will say a word. Go ahead. I'm not sure I'm confident to answer it. I, uh, I think who we are is defined through our national values. It's not a matter of ethnicity or skin color or religious preference. It seems to me that historically, in the present debate about immigration is, I think, I hope, a little uh, aberrant. But historically, we've been fairly to greatly successful in accommodating people of different cultures and allowing them to keep their cultures while accepting our national values. That's one thing. You're talking about defining our leadership role in the world. Are we an imperial power? I think I would say not, uh, that we, for the most part, uh, our history is one of, of non-colonialism, the Philippines being the one exception, and uh, and is not, as Colin Powell used to say, coveting no more ground than the six feet necessary to bury our dead. So um, now that's all different from how a sole superpower, which is what we found ourselves in, uh, carries itself in the world, a, a nation which has interest in every part of the globe and without whose active participation nothing very meaningful takes place in any part of the globe. So that's the position we find ourselves in. Uh, so I think I would, I'm, I'm thinking while I'm talking, I think I'm agreeing with you that we haven't straightened on what the perfect, the total purpose as a national consensus of our sole superpower is. But I think as Americans, we know who we are as defined by our values. Yeah, I, I would just add to that, uh, I agree with that. I'd just add that the report does try to deal with that. Uh, what it says is we're going to be the largest superpower for another couple of decades. But as I mentioned in my comments, it's a difference being the largest when you're seen as a bully or as a friend. And we suggest a series of concrete measures which can make us seen, be seen as a friend, promoting global public goods and exporting hope and not fear. That's very much a question of who we are. And the report I would submit is addressing our identity. Let me, there's a third row back here. Uh, Otto Kreischer, I'm a freelance defense writer. The contrast of soft power, hard power usually sets the military off on the hard power side. But is there a role for the military in the soft power side? You know, Admiral Mike Mullen, the former CNO, now Chairman of Joint Chiefs, put the Navy to use very extensively during his time in the humanitarian mission, you know, in Mercy and Comfort, you know, doing uh, uh, visits all, all, all the Pacific and uh, Latin America. You know, our aid, uh, you know, uh, after the great tsunami, it's primarily, uh, you know, the military taking the lead. And I think, you know, Joe and I pointed out that, you know, uh, the military, because it's efficient, you know, does things that creates a, uh, maybe creates a, a, a bellicose uh, image. But, you know, can the military be used in the soft power role? No, mil military is a very important instrument of soft power. Don't confuse the resource which could be hard or soft uh, with the behavior. Soft power is the ability to get what you want through attraction. 
when the U.S. Navy showed up with tsunami relief, that was a military resource or instrument that got us a lot of soft power. And I think what's very interesting about the new strategy that, uh, that Admiral Mullen and others have propounded is how much the Navy is turning to a soft power strategy. Uh, you know, the, the, was it, uh, uh, the, what was the ship Comfort, I guess, Comfort. that just made this tour? I mean, the Navy is seeing this as, uh, you know, a good part of what uh, is a larger smart power strategy. You have to have a very effective fighting Navy, but it can do more than that. Could I, could I, forgive me, can I add one thing to that, Otto? And that is, let's not underestimate the importance of having the world's finest military that operates under civilian control. I mean, this is the gold standard for military establishment, and it operates entirely in a disciplined manner under civilian control. That by itself is an enormous contribution, I believe, to the world. Yes, in front. Morton, GDP Associates. Um, I was struck by your proposal to have a joint uh, technology center. And when I was in the government, I proposed having a transatlantic science foundation. And we were never able to implement this because of the issue of proprietary rights. So say you have uh, scientists from different countries and they cooperate and they develop a new fuel cell or something like that. Then, in the transition to applying it, you run into a lot of thorny problems, and I was wondering if you would consider that and what your position is. No, we, uh, as I recall, we did not consider the, the question of proprietary uh, information, intellectual property that's developed uh, through these joint development center. But it seems to me that if it's a gov governmentally uh, driven, then there can be a governmental. Government-to-government uh, -government agreement on this. Uh, I, I don't think it's insurmountable, but you've raised a, a point that we did not consider. Yes, in front. Hello, Joanna Noonan from the Coast Guard. My question has to do with the integration part, which really does seem to be the hardest part, like you mentioned. I think we all obviously have a responsibility to integrate, but who besides the chief integrator who's been mentioned many times, the president, has the authority to integrate. Is there a person or a body that also has that responsibility? The report suggests that the president designate a deputy national security advisor for smart power who would be charged, who would be dual-hatted between OMB and the NSC, and who would be charged on developing a strategy which could be analyzed in this quadrennial smart power review, but would be constantly updated, which have a budgetary component so that you would have a capacity to make the kinds of trade-offs between a decision by the Broadcasting Board of Governors and uh, another uh, trip by uh, the ship Mer uh, Mercy or Comfort or, uh, or other types of questions. Right now, that capacity doesn't exist. So we locate that in uh, a joint-hatted or dual-hatted person uh, reporting to directly to the president, who uh, is both NSC OMB. I think it's fair to say, Commander, that uh, in addition to one of the strategy developments, which would be a Washington-based situation, that the actual implementation we push way out into the field, and the uh, and the necessity to have this thing includes together out in the field. Maybe I think we, I 
do think we often make a mistake here in Washington by coming up with just headquarters and things of that nature as if that's solving the problem, whether it's in Homeland Security or, or anything else when we might be better served to actually push things more and more out to the, to the field. We have time for about uh, one, perhaps two questions, depending how quick they are. Way in the back, I've been ignoring for too long. Art Kellerman, I'm a fellow who wandered inside the Beltway a year ago, and I'll be wandering out in a few weeks. Uh, I would have to say, I hope I'm speaking for many in the audience, that the hardest part of listening to this presentation has been resisting the urge to clap. Because I think the concepts that you've identified, which replace a, an approach built on fear with an approach built on optimism and confidence for who we are and what we are as a country is vital for our future and for the sake of the world. My question is, in the context of international development, what made you all choose global health? Hard to make money in global health, as opposed to other areas where America's historically been entrepreneurial abroad. So why global health as your strategy? I like it, but I'm interested, given the breadth of background and expertise in the bipartisan nature, which is also a very positive part of this process, what made you pick that as your lead for international development? Betty, you may want to answer. You've been our leading figure on this, along with Sylvia uh, Matthews, who's not here today. Every single way in which we can affect a positive outcome from the life of a child makes a parent happy grandparent happy, an aunt and uncle, the child grow up to, um, to the youth uh, who's been involved in giving them hope and opportunity as a friend. And I can think of uh, no better, better example than when I go into uh, other countries and, and, and when I do travel, I'll spend a week in a country um, traveling around it and sitting down and talking to parents. And parents know whether it's the UN, they know the United States funds it's help, uh, that, that helped with the immunizations for their children. Um, uh, community leaders uh, know that it's uh, the bed nets that are being provided by the United States that's made uh, malaria just, just phenomenally go down in, in Tanzania, which leads to more productivity um, healthier children, more attendance rate in schools, they get that. And when you make the difference in the life of a child and in a community, you create an opportunity to leave, to, to leave space for someone uh, to follow you when you go in and ask for their help or for them to take um, a view uh, internationally on, on, on something. And right now, um, global health, I believe, is, is the one way in which people don't see the United States coming in with an agenda other than that, as human beings, we all care for our children. And, and could I add, this is, this is also an area where there is so much talent and resources and energy in the private sector that's willing to partner. So you could save the children, Project Hope, Gates Fund. The world, this country is full of people that want to help with this problem. All we have to do is to use our capability to bring that to, to the problem. It's, it's a great opportunity for everybody. I'm afraid we have uh, exhausted our time, and, uh, but I want to thank you all for attending and commend you for the good questions.